0: This episode is brought to you by BentoBox, a platform that connects restaurants with people. Learn more at getbento.com slash opening soon. That is G-E-T-B-E-N-T-O.com forward slash opening soon. This is Jenny Goodman.
1: And I'm Alex McCreary.
0: And we are the hosts of Opening Soon on Heritage Radio Network. We listen to HRN and are actually guests on several shows before bringing our own show to this network. And it's been so amazing to see and hear the unparalleled content that comes from our community, even with limited financial resources. HRN's been making food radio for 10 years. HRN staff and hosts make it look really easy, but making the best food radio out there is actually really hard work.
1: We're super excited to be a part of Heritage Radio Network, and we invite you to join us in making sure that in our second decade, HRN is stronger than ever. So become a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show your support by selecting opening soon in the designation drop down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN.
0: Soon on Heritage Radio Network. We are your hosts. I'm Jenny Goodman.
1: And I'm Alex McCreary.
0: And if you're just tuning in for our season in this episode, Opening Soon is a weekly show that will walk you through all of the business of opening a restaurant. So we're talking to industry leaders, to chefs, to restaurateurs, to vendors that can help take your business from an idea to opening soon.
1: Yep, and if you've uh, listened to one of our podcasts before, you've kind of heard our story about why we're here, and a big part of that is um, the restaurant fail that Jenny and I had together. Um, And one of the few things that we did right in that restaurant venture was contacting our guest that's with us today, (laughs) um, Robert Bookman. But we'll we'll come back um, with a full intro on Robert in just a minute. We're gonna do a couple key takeaways um, from last week's episode. and number one was to, our, our episode last week, uh, if you didn't catch it, was with Steven Satterfield of Miller Union, um, Jill Tyler, and John um, Seibert. John Sybert of uh, Tail Up Goat in DC. And they were talking about um, team and, and really strengthening your employee base and um, how to find good people, how to keep good people, and how to treat them really well. Number one was um, from both or all three of our guests, really, was having a clear vision of what the restaurant is and and how the experience is meant to be um, carried out. And also, at the same time, understanding your employees and what's motivating them to be part of your team.
0: Yeah, I think Stephen even mentioned, like, over and over again, repeating what his vision was to his employees over the past 10 years. Um, number two was when hiring staff, the interview is super crucial for judging whether or not the person is a good fit for the team. So make sure that you do a stage or a trail with every single person that you anticipate bringing into the restaurant, um, you know, regardless.
1: Uh, number three was cross-training and uh, how it can build a stronger bond between your staff and a better understanding of the experience that, that the diner goes through. And um, John said that at their restaurant uh, Tail Up Goat, that they their kitchen team all spends four days obviously in the kitchen, and then they spend a fifth day on the floor, and that's you know as a backup waiter, um, as a barback or as a bartender, and they, that way they see. The guest experience at the at the table side, and, and how that how their food is affected, um, and it really translates well for them in the kitchen.
0: And another, um, point was about creating some of the benefits of like maybe a typical nine to five job would have at your restaurant. So employees view their job, not just as a job, but actually as a career. And I think, you know, specifically Jill and and Steven both talked a lot about wine training, um, even for like the kitchen and how that has really helped to make people feel like they had continuing education.
1: Yep, And then the last one that I thought was really interesting uh, and really good advice for anybody that's listening to to this show and learning how to open, trying to learn more about how to open a restaurant. Um, And Stephen said that in his last job as a chef, as an employee, he, you know, asked for experience on his days off in everything that he could. So he was a host one day. He was behind the bar one day. He was in the accounting, um, in the accounting office one day. and, And really... Um, trying to learn as much as possible about how to run an entire business. And his point was also that, that's not something that anyone's going to offer to you. That's something that you really have to go out and ask for and really make it a point to, to learn yourself.
0: Yeah, and Steven said he's the uh, James Beard Award-winning dishwasher, so uh, he's <laughs> definitely done this. You need your dishwasher in Atlanta. <laughs> um, anyway, so let's hop on to this uh, this topic for this week, which we're really excited to have such an expert here with us today. So today on Opening Soon, we're talking all about permitting and licensing and navigating the regulatory hurdles that you need to overcome in order to get your doors actually open. You know, how do you get past health inspections? What about your pesky liquor license? Um, and we'll take a quick dip into expediting our way through permitting of mainly in New York City. But I think a lot of things can be applicable to to other places, too.
1: Absolutely. Um, and we're, so we're again, we're joined with Robert S. Bookman. Uh, he's a recognized leader in the New York hospitality industry, and he's worked with the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs, and since then has specialized in representing small businesses before numerous city and state agencies, the New York City Council, and the courts. He's also authentically involved in the industry as a co founder and counsel to the New York Nightlife Association, and now as counsel to its successor organization, the New York City Hospitality
2: Alliance. Uh, thanks for being here, Robert. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me. It's, uh, I'm also a huge fan of this industry. Uh, the hospitality industry is a unique industry. Uh, it's creative. Uh, it produces a huge amount of jobs. And it's really one of the few industries left where uh, you work your way up from the bottom. A quick anecdotal story is uh, one of our board members opened a place uh, in Washington, D.C., because it's increasingly difficult to open in New York. (laughs) (laughs) And he, uh, on opening day with all the staff, um, an older gentleman, an African-American gentleman came up to him and said, uh, you know, Mr. Bank, I just want you to know that thank you for this job. I appreciate the opportunity. I will be the Best dishwasher you ever had. And five years from now, when we have our fifth anniversary, you're going to come to me and say, you're right. You're the best dishwasher I ever had. To which you responded, if in five years from now, you're still washing dishes, then I have failed you as an yeah. owner of, of, of this restaurant. Because that's not what we do in this industry. People move up. Yeah. And I don't true. know a single restaurant owner that comes into my office wanting to uh, become a restaurant owner that hasn't worked their way up from the industry. That's very true. That's, very true. Yeah.
0: And it's, it's, it's very cyclical because, as Stevenson said last week, the chef often goes back to washing the dishes when the dishwasher's <laughs> out sick. Um, so that's, you know, full circle. Um, I love that. So tell us, you know, you've been in this industry for 40 years. Is that 30 some something years? We'll Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I'm like dating you. Um, but tell us, how did you get started and tell us a little bit about like your background and, and all that kind of good things?
2: Sure. So I was uh, counsel to the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs in the Koch administration, and that was a mayor a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> and when I left uh, Consumer Affairs, uh, that agency regulated uh, many of the hospitality industry businesses in an odd sort of fashion. So if you were a restaurant and you wanted a sidewalk cafe, they, they were the licensing agency. If you were a, a nightclub and wanted patron dancing, uh, which was Big at the time I left, uh, many clubs. You need a cabaret license, right? So New
0: York City has something very specific where, if, like, people want to like shake their butts. They actually have to have a special license, correct. Called a cabaret license.
2: That's correct. Well, the people don't, but the business. Wow, <laughs> remember that yeah, people? <laughs> right. You need a license to shake their butt. <laughs> um, so I went into you know when yeah. I left Consumer Affairs uh, as counsel, there were, the industry came to me basically, yeah. and I started to do more and more of that. And then eventually, I met my partner from a, a mutual friend, Warren Pizetsky. He was just left as being counsel to state liquor authority, and we formed up. Uh, you know what was became a unique boutique practice where we were able to handle all of the licensing needs uh, for the hospitality industry, whether it's a mom and pop restaurant or a hotel or anything in between. Other firms were just doing the city work or just doing the liquor right. work, but we were able to do all of it, and it created a very successful niche for us over the decades.
0: Yeah. So, and you guys special, I know you you helped us when we had our now defunct business goods with our liquor license. So, and we talked a little bit about this before, but can you tell us a little bit about like what it's like to get a liquor license in New York City? What are like the three main pillars and all that kind of stuff?
2: It's changed a lot over the decades. Uh, it, Liquor licensing is a state law, it's not a city law, right. uh, but uh, there was increasing pressure from neighborhood groups and they're, therefore their elected officials to uh, make it dif- more difficult. And so we, we have a, a lengthy, burdensome cumbersome process right now um, in New York City specifically and we'll talk more about community boards and the legitimate role they, they play as far as community input but the difficult role they play as far as business people are concerned um, and, uh, and and you know so you do all that uh, the basic three concepts the basic three pillars if you say of what the liquor licensing is looking at is local input in New York City that would be the community boards uh, outside of the city is town councils mm-hmm. um, who's who in this proposed business. There's no such thing as a silent partner. There's yeah. no such thing as I'm just an investor or I'm passive. They're not licensing the, just a the corporation whose name goes on, on the license document. They're licensing all the people that are behind that corporation. So it's 100% disclosure of who's who, and those people will go through, uh, depending on how many owners there are and their percentages of ownership, varying levels of, of background checks. All the, all the way to so the everybody that's printed. on the
1: list right So if you have 50 or 100 investors, everybody on that list is going to go through the
2: everybody on that list is listed um, okay. for paperwork reduction purposes if you have 50 or 100, only those with a significant percentage need I to see. get fingerprinted, but everybody gets disclosed everybody gets with basic disclosed. information. And that's a big misnomer out there. A lot of lawyers who don't do liquor work but do lease work, you know, think that as long as uh, the guy owns 10%, they don't have to be disclosed. That's not true. Wow. Um, and that's a big problem, and it can come back to bite you. Uh, later on, uh, when you are doing uh, corporate change and b- bringing in a partner and you've got a bunch of people that already didn't know who they were.
0: Every time you bring in a new partner, do you have to list that person? Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Uh, the third pillar is the money. They want to know where the money's coming from, you know, make sure it's not that it's clean money and that it, you know, it's not coming from, uh, you know, safe in your in your bedroom. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so stop keeping your money under your mattress that you're <laughs> saving for your uh, that you're saving your pay to your what restaurant. What we call
2: age, age that money and age put it in a bank before you come <laughs> see me.
0: <laughs> All right. So and when do you recommend that people, you know, if you're thinking about opening a restaurant, you're starting to look for spaces. When do people need to come and contact you and when do you need to start this process?
2: As soon as possible. Uh, in some cases, even before you have, uh, we, we, you know, before you have lo- picked a location. But certainly once you've picked a location and before you've signed the lease. Yeah. We do lots of consultations with people who are generically wanting to know where they should look or what mm-hmm. kind of place they should look for. What neighborhoods are increasingly difficult to get approved? What neighborhoods are, are less difficult to get approved? So we do that with people. You, you know, uh, right, right, in the beginning.
1: Are there qualities about a space itself that would infringe upon the
2: ability to get a, a license? Yes, and then there, are, then there are those types of issues about what you should look for, even you know within any neighborhood. Um, and increasingly, we'll say things like places that previously had a liquor license is are, is easier than places that never had a liquor license. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, uh, if you want a four a.m. bar. You know, then you've got to look for a location that doesn't necessarily have a lot of residences in that building or on that block. Um, the space itself needs to be properly zoned, uh, you know, uh, for for the use. So we have plenty of situations in emerging gentrifying neighborhoods in Brooklyn. I shouldn't call them emerging; they were always there. Uh, but <laughs> in, in gentrifying in gentr- neighborhoods in Brooklyn, yeah. where people, uh, you know, think that just because. It's commercial, they could put a restaurant there, and that's yeah. not always the case so we we ask you to make sure you're checking in on that those issues uh, right. and if you are putting in a the kitchen, then you're going to have to deal with issues like where the garbage is going to go, right. what time is going to go out, where are you venting to? are you venting into people's bedrooms across the street? Yeah. so right. there are a lot of physical c- concerns you know as well, depending on what you want to do,
0: yeah, and one thing that was you know interesting. When we were talking before about the liquor licenses, is you know, and you were mentioning come to you before the lease because you were saying it's not necessarily guaranteed. If you buy a restaurant, you buy a lease. It's not necessarily guaranteed that you're getting that liquor license. I think that's well, a big
1: misconception. are not. Conception. I think your point
2: that we talked about is that you're not getting that right. liquor license. You- I think it's important for people to understand New York as every state has their own liquor laws. There's there's very few national liquor laws. When Prohibition ended, it gave every state the right to regulate liquor as it sees fit. And while there are a lot of similarities from state to state, there are a lot of differences as well. Uh, So, for example, in New Jersey, there's a limited number of liquor licenses by county, uh, while I don't practice there, uh, it's like the old taxi medallion right. where you have to buy that license. It adds a couple hundred thousand dollars, which is why they don't have a great food scene in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sorry, listeners no. in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> there are some people who have great restaurants in New Jersey, but, but yes, well, com, I think come to but New New it's more expensive, oh, I guess, is what we're saying.
2: But there's no such thing as transferring somebody's liquor license in the state of New York. So right. Therefore, there is no guarantee that you're getting a liquor license. Right. Even if you're buying the existing corporation and business of a place that's currently licensed, because don't forget those other pillars that we talked right. about. Right. Um, There's still who's, who are you, people who are buying this business? Are you licensable? Are there any statutory disqualifications? And where's your money coming from? Um, and then, you know, again, even with the community pillar, you may be a sleepy, Italian restaurant in Little Italy and you've been licensed for 50 years and you know you have quote no restrictions on your license because you've been licensed for 50 years before there were even community boards and and stipulations and you want to go in there and put a a lounge that's going to be open to four o'clock just because they're licensed doesn't mean you're getting those are apples and oranges so there is nothing automatic so the earlier you come speak to a professional who knows what they're talking about the better off you are because we encourage and we'll work with your leasing attorney or your Corporate attorney to make sure that you have certain liquor license contingencies
0: within the actual lease. Within right? the actual lease, within yeah. the
2: actual deal, if you're buying a restaurant. Right. Um, and fortunately, the community board process is step one in the process. So we, you know, we will have a good idea once we're done with the community board and 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 you have met with you with your professional and gone through all the statutory issues and these other pillars. And if I'm comfortable that. You're licensable, and we've gone and we're successful with the community board. I'll get, I, I, I'll know at that point that you're going to get a liquor license right. sooner or later, you know, barring something unforeseen.
1: How does a, how does a new restaurateur sort of safeguard themselves against not getting a liquor license if they have, if they're ready to sign a lease? Like, do, are there stipulations they can put in the lease that kind of outline the ability so, to get one?
2: Yes. So there are basically two ways that you come into the business. One is you're taking vacant space directly from a landlord even if it had been a restaurant before it's vacant space so there's only one issue and one document there and that's the lease. Right. The second way is you're buying an existing business becoming less common now given the number of vacant stores in the city of New York we're seeing less people spending money buying an existing business when they could you know, wait three months and they'll be out of business, or they can get one across <laughs> the street. We hope not. <laughs> Say yeah. but true. Sad but that. True. Yeah. But when you're buying an existing business, then there are two documents. There's still the lease with the landlord, and now there's the deal, if you will, right. or the agreement. So there are contingencies that are applicable in both situations. Uh, and the lease situation, uh, we want the landlord to agree that this lease does not become effective. My down payment, you don't get to keep, et cetera, until. I'm done with the community board, and we recommend specific language. And I'm approved for the community board for whatever—not less than whatever your line in the sand is. Whatever—not less than the following—is working for you from a business perspective. So, not just approval by the community board for an alcohol license, because. You, could, you may need to be open to 3 o'clock and have a full liquor license, and the community board says I'll approve you for beer and wine at midnight. So that doesn't work for you. So we, we recommend very specific language about what you need. A full liquor license for a restaurant open seven days a week, closing hours no earlier than right. weekends, weekends, right. and weekdays. That continuously protects you.
0: And you, and you work either, like, if you're negotiate helping with the lease review and negotiation, you'll put those in, or you work with other, like, real estate attorneys to help suggest exact language?
2: That's correct. And when landlords won't do that uh, in this market, then we say, well, then the alternative is, you know, it's not going to sign the lease until we're done with the community board, and for satisfied, we'll then come back to you.
0: So people can do that? They can apply for a liquor license in a, in a potential space, even if they haven't actually taken the lease?
2: Most community boards want to... Want you to at least have a letter of understanding with, the you know, like an LOI or right. something. They're not right. doing yeah. speculative. You know, three people coming into right. the same space. Right. right, right, right. Which used to used to be the situation.
0: <laughs> people are cutting people down. <laughs> well, we didn't think <laughs> there was <laughs> anything.
2: Years ago, well, the we community board anything. meeting just ends up being like well, yeah, eighteen like hours, hours long, long at that point, right? Yeah. We didn't think there was anything wrong years ago if there was a full lease space, you know, there, and a client came to us and we go, listen, you know, I don't know what's going to be with the community board, so why don't we start that process right. and see what happens, right? And if it Works out, then you can go, you know, speak to the landlord. So we we thought that was legitimate. Yeah. Uh, but then what happened is community boards were getting on the same month multiple applications for the same space. Right. So, so, so they, they say we like, want no. your know, landlord pick somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second situation when you're buying the business, At
0: least you see your competition is <laughs> yeah. I love
2: it. When you're buying the business, then is those issues plus on on the agreement we want to see similar contingencies. A, approval by the community board, and B, we're not closing this deal. You're not getting your money, seller, until such time as what we call a temporary license application is right. approved by the liquor authority, what lay people call a transfer. It's, it, there's nothing being transferred here, but there is an expedited process when you're the buyer of an existing licensed business that's currently in good standing. Right. And the way we know it's currently in good standing is. About a month after we filed the Wicker Authority, we get approval for a temporary license okay. for the buyer. Then we close the deal. The buyer's application is still permanent; is still pending, but we're we're confident, and then you know that we can close the deal at that point. Robert, how
1: do you how do you sweeten up to the community board? How, how does are they strictly like sticking by the book of? what can go in that space, or are there, can you sweeten can up you make, to this? Sh-
0: should mean, you cook some of your dishes
1: you for us? Uh, you, yeah.
2: you? you mean other than my engaging personality? <laughs> and, and I, and I do always consider laughter to be an important part <laughs> of uh, my presentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that community boards have a tough job to do. I don't, I don't agree with the system that it was developed. I, you know, I, I, I think it is too myopic, it's too centered to what's good for my block or my neighborhood as opposed to what's good for the city. But right. the system is the system. These are volunteers. They care deeply about their neighborhoods. We don't always have a similar agenda, but I respect the process, and you have to respect the people sitting up there. And we do. Uh, we respect that process by never lying to them knowingly. Right. Because we, clients come and go, but the community boards stay. And right, we, so right. we've built a reputation over decades of, of not, you know, I was going to say bull. Well, I don't know you, you can say, can say bullshit. That. Oh, not, not, bullsh- <laughs> not bullshitting them, at least not knowingly, because clients can bullshit you. Right. Um, don't
0: bullshit your liquor your liquor attorney. Or uh, your rabbi, right, or your
2: priest. <laughs> um, and giving them professional presentations, you know, where yeah. we have the answers to their questions, right. uh, and we're not standing up there, you know, hamna, 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 you know. So, right, right. So I think, you know, there are a number of practitioners out there who do have that kind of, you know... Uh, Gravitas with community boards, you know, and not, the business not owners are always there with you. And the business own, well, they're the required one; we're the extra. Right, they're just there helping. You know, right. They got to go. The community board wants to see who their neighbor is potentially going to be.
1: Are they bringing along, you know, some of their key? team members
2: to talk about the business or well it's usually a little early so they don't yeah, even have team members know. hired right. yet right. you know uh they don't know their manager's going to be yet and right we're, we're months away by the time we go to a community board at best yeah from opening a restaurant
0: what right. is the timeline that you recommend or like that you what on average is the timeline that you see and
2: yeah i could tell you what the averages were and then there's going to be a caveat to that because the liquor authority is now in a advertised backlog Oh, yeah. uh, huh. So <laughs> that's never something you want to hear i like no. for a number of years now the timeline has been for what lay people again call a transfer where you're buying an existing business mm-hmm. your community board process is first and that is a month to a month and a half um you cannot even file the liquor authority until the 31st day after you've notified the community board. Right. But you want to be done with the community board for the reasons we've discussed before you go to liquor authority. So depending on the calendar, it could be as much as two months for the community board, depending on when you get started with them and they only meet once a month. But Is we, it
1: only one meeting or one sometimes meeting there's month. like signatures and petitions? Is that not for liquor?
0: That lessons. is,
2: but that's for your once a month meeting. Okay. So you do
0: that in advance. Of so your you do that in
2: advance for their, you know, you know, community board two, in Manhattan. They meet twice a month, but it's still really a once a month, you know, a session. Um, after that, you file your application at the liquor authority, and from the time of filing to the time of a temporary approval was uh, used to be about four weeks. Oh, that's good. So you're two two and a half months. To a closing on when you buy an existing,
0: and then you hear dun, 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 pow, pow. if it is a
2: <laughs> if it is a vacant space, then there is no temporary right. in New York City. Right. So the standard time frame for the Liquor Authority was about three to four months for a new application. If you had what's called an attorney-certified application, which is a process they created about seven, eight years ago when they had a huge backlog to help. Expedite the backlog, and it was so successful that they kept it. And that's where the attorneys only uh, do a lot of extra work that the examiner might do, right. and so it gets a faster review. That was taking about two months. So you got a month, a month and a half for the community board, plus about two months on an attorney certified. So you're looking months. at three to four months. Those don't don't apply anymore. All right. The liquor authority. Two things happened about three four months ago. They lost a the number of people. They, it was taking forever for the state to approve the replacements of those people. And simultaneously with that, they were getting an uptick in the number of applications. Mm. So finally, they started to uh, get approval to hire people, but they still got to be trained and they're all not replaced yet. Uh, so they are backlogged. So the timeframes I give you are, are now add one to one and a half months to all of those timeframes.
0: And then you mentioned also like your COI, like if Con had us to turn your gas on, you have to get like a COI, then like you, the, you could still be backlogged and not approved because of that.
2: So th- that's what we were talking about as far as one of the physical things when you're looking at right. a building, you know, uh, the certificate of occupancy. Uh, is a required document or some equivalent from the local buildings department uh, to give to the liquor authority in order not to get approved for the liquor license, but to pick up your liquor license. So at the end of that process, you get what's called a conditional approval letter. Mm -hmm. It says, okay, we've approved your license. When you have the following conditions, bring them in and we'll give you your liquor license. And those are pretty standard conditions, the most obvious one is you're ready to open right that the place is is ready it's it's the tables and chairs are there the bathrooms the kitchen whatever you show us that you're ready to open but it's a state agency so they deal with hundreds of buildings departments around the state everyone has a different document but the law requires that they cannot issue that license unless the local buildings department has cleared that space for the use that you've applied for so if you applied for a hotel you need to provide them a document in New York and it's called Certificate of Occupancy for a hotel. If It's a restaurant and you, need to, you know, eating and drinking. It gets complicated because New York City has lots of buildings that don't have certificates of Occupancy. It predates the law of creating right. a Certificate of Occupancy. We also have old CFOs from the 1930s where they didn't use modern terminology like eating and drinking. They, they what did they say? Store. Uh, so store. we need to see that CFO as early as possible in the process because we could... We could we will know whether it will be acceptable for the liquor right. authority, and if not, we want your expediter or architect to get an, work on getting an amendment to that to, you, know, create, you know, so it might say store, right. 1932, but it might say on the number of people six. Uh, <laughs> you're like,
0: come on! Which, I mean, back yeah. in 1932,
2: it may have been a retail Re- store yeah. with six people, and the liquor authority is going to give you a hard time for yeah. seventy-four people. You know, when it's right. like six people, when there's a mismatch. So there's, And then the building department has things called Letters of No Objection, which they've created for places that don't have a C of O. Right. But their records indicate historically this type of use has been permitted at this location. Mm -hmm. So, you know, another reason to get to somebody like me sooner rather than later because you can get that conditional approval letter, and if you now, first are waking up to the fact that you need a, you need that a, your CFO yeah. is no good, or you need an LNO. Right. It could take two or three months from the building's yeah, department the buildings to get department. that. Right. And, Ugh, and that's so a real disaster. Op- You're ready to yeah. open and, and you yeah. and you can't get your liquor license picked up. Yeah. Let's take a, a lot of moving parts.
0: There's so many moving parts, and there's a lot of agencies to navigate. Let's take a super quick break um, to hear from our friends at Bento Box, and then we'll come back with more. Great. Mary, along with her husband, mother, and sister, had an idea to sell Vietnamese spring rolls at farmers markets. They found a kiosk in Chicago's French Market in 2009, and that started Saigon Sisters. In the years since, they have grown to include three locations and a sister restaurant, Bang Chop Thai. They wanted to reach more guests through online catering, but using third-party services came with high commission fees, so they looked for another solution. Bento Box connected Saigon Sisters with people by designing a new website that features an online catering store where guests can directly place orders without a third-party service. Saigon Sisters is one of 4,000 restaurants that's powered by Bento. Visit getbento.com slash opening soon to learn more.
1: We're back with uh, Robert Bookman, and we're chatting about uh, regulatory agencies and permitting in New York City. And normally when we come back from break, I'll do a wrap-up of key points from the beginning. I think the only one I have from this time is to get in touch with this guy. Like, ASAP, if you can't get in touch with Robert or you're not in New York, then find somebody, talk to them sooner, sooner, sooner than later.
0: For sure, and I think um, you know another interesting thing we've talked a lot about like liquor licenses because I know it's really important to people's business plans, but we haven't really touched on your experience with Department of Health. Um, which you say to I'm like, there's a oh, heavy bet. sigh in the room. <laughs> yeah, it's like That's say, a legal term. Oh, you <laughs> oh, you <laughs> right? You say doh to any chef or restaurateur, and there's a collective groan. So um, you're, so you sit on the council that is supposed to advise them in favor of, of like making it more business friendly. Tell us a little bit about about your doh experience.
2: Under the Bloomberg administration, two things happened to health department, which really. Uh, caused the industry and the health department to be at loggerheads for the first time history in history. Look, nobody likes being inspected, nobody right. likes being fined. Um and there's always that certain give and take between that agency and the industry, but it really uh, it really went downhill fast in the Bloomberg administration. The first thing that they did was they got rid of the traditional inspection system of critical and non critical, uh, which everybody understood. Right. So, like um, a broken, you know, unshielded light bulb was not critical. You know, food out of, out of out of temperature was, and they went to a point system, and everything had points. And the and- problem with the point system was. People started, the fines started to go up.
0: And this is the birth of the leather, letter grades, well, too. This
2: is well, well before, yes. right? Well, well before. So before. So it
1: was, before that, it was like basically yes or no. Yeah, so
2: exactly. Pass or fail for the right. most part. Right. Um, and if you had a number of criticals, well, you know, they would give you like 72 hours to correct it, you know. Huh. Uh, if it was really, really bad, they would shut you down. But that was rare, you know, until you corrected it. The point system changed everything, and the industry felt this was disori- oriented towards making money. And that's exactly what we started to see. Um, the number, the amount of dollars that the Health Department was collecting in fines was going up dramatically under the point system. Um, then they added the letter grades on top on of top. it, mm-hmm. and we were arguing that you have a faulty, you have a faulty foundation here, and you're only making it worse by adding this letter grade system on top of a faulty point system, which is already causing problems. Uh, so by the time letter grades were unfortunately adopted. Uh, the fines under the Bloomberg administration went from $12 million a year annually to the entire restaurant industry in the city of New York to fifty two million dollars a just year. Staggering. Annually.
0: That's good. And this is the
2: same industry yeah. that is world renowned, no you know, for our food scene. We were not known for dirty restaurants. People were not dropping dead in the streets <laughs> from tomain poisoning. <laughs> it was just a ridiculous increase in in nonsense fines and it was a it was a revenue generator. A philosophy it was a revenue generator, it was a philosophy of find first and educate second. As yeah. a result of that There was a huge pushback from the industry, the city council heard us, Uh, Christine Quinn was speaker at the time, and she forced down, really the throat of the administration, a number of reforms in her last year when she was running for mayor. Um, And one of those reforms was the creation of a health department advisory board consisting of stakeholders in the industry uh, to work with the health department to help reform this process. Uh, in addition, there were other reforms about reducing fines, requiring no fines for sign, sign violations, which are the most minor things, and a number of other steps like that. We started to see some progress in fines going down, you know, in the current administration as a result of those laws. They're currently around, I think, $30, $32 million mm-hmm. a year, which is still almost triple what it was and there's really no reason for it. So when a, a restaurateur sees the health department come in, and it's a busy time for them, you know, then it's, it's stressful. And right. especially in this day and age where margins are so thin, you know there's a decent chance you're going to walk out with fines. One of the things that we were able to get accomplished uh, that uh, was pushed pushed by the council again, not by the health department, is that if they give you an A in your initial inspection but you still had some points, there's no fines on those points. Um. Hmm. That wasn't the case in the beginning when it went up to $52 million. You got an A and you still got fined. still got fined. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but now there's more reforms that need to be done. So, for example, in the initial inspection, if you're accused by the inspector of having, let's say, a B range of points, and you go to the, the administrative hearing, which is a neutral hearing, and you get some of those charges dismissed so that the ones that remain that you were found uh, guilty for the number of points equal an a range the health department still does not give you the a even they make you get reinspected
0: before they'll give you an a right
2: and our position is if a judge says you got an a you got an a if a right. judge says you weren't speeding you weren't right. speeding if, right. you know and and that would cut down on millions of dollars a year and unnecessary fines and people you know coming having to spend another half a day you know at, at it's also at, the at labor the of
1: someone having to come out and and reinspect when they're...
2: Excellent point, yeah. because at the hearing where this came up, there was some NYU or some professor who studied all of this and right. studied all that data in the first couple of years of the letter grades. And he said they are wasting a huge amount of time going to safe places and thereby ignoring... Unsa- unsafe yeah. places where they don't have the personnel because if 10% of the places are unsafe and they're spending 90% of their time in places that are getting, getting an A, then they're wasting their time.
0: Right. right. And then did, and so speaking of the data, is there any data to support that the increase in fine has led to like safer restaurants?
2: No. Uh, and I say that because every time I go to one of the quarterly uh, health department advisory board meetings, we're given a list of the top 10 violations yeah. of the hundred violations you can get. And those top ten violations stay the same. What are they? Year in, year out. Percentage changes by a tenth year in, year out. Um, and um, Do
0: you want to shout out some of the biggest some of the, the, well, the uh, biggest I, offenders?
2: I could tell you that about thirty percent of the top you know, of all the top ten violations are what used to be called non-critical or minor right. violations,
1: like a dent, like a dented can, de- like, a, like a,
2: a, can, a dented can or
0: segregate a, your dented cans. P- plumbing yeah.
2: issues, you know, get a leak, a plumbing leak, you know, right. some physical thing there that has nothing to do with food safety and nothing to do with cleanliness. Right. Um, um, potential access for vermin is one of the top ten all the time, which is not a surprise because there are cracks in buildings and doorways. Ways, you know, and ceilings,
0: especially in older cities like New York, or exactly. Chicago, or yeah. Any
2: advice for? But let me just finish the second part yeah. of that thought. Finding vermin is not one, not right. one of the ten, top ten. <laughs> so the industry, so the is potential, have a rat.
0: you maybe could potentially hole. have a rat hole. Right. Therefore, you are so going the to rats get your can get through
2: especially. just about
1: anything. If the the you, industry
2: does a great job with you know policing that and with bring having exterminators on a regular basis. So getting violations for potential problems when there is no real problem to me is kind of silly. Right?
0: Crazy. Yeah. And then so, way you know, I think Alex is just about to ask. You know, what can people do to get ahead of of you know racking up expensive fines from the health department
2: unfortunately i got to recommend professionals again it's it's hard and it's complicated to do it on your own there is a whole group of people out there um especially since letter grades they tend to be ex-health department officials who will come to your place uh they will do a mock inspection they'll show you they'll help train your staff um and it's, it's worth it. The health department will do that as well. There is a, pro, a, a program that, again, we encourage where prior to opening, you could pay them to come and do such an inspection. But it's very, very rarely used because people just don't trust the health, department. the health department.
1: But it is a good idea to do it bef- well before you like open and even have, yeah. have it with your architect because there's some little things like – Having a sink within 10 feet of a prep
2: area that can absolutely shut down your letter grade in a, in a heartbeat, right? That's correct. You definitely need to do it before you open, but you should do it periodically as well. Right. Um, and um, and it should it should be when staff is not aware that your consultant is coming, so it's more realistic.
0: And this isn't just in New York City, because there's a lot of cities now that have letter grades.
2: There's not mm-hmm. a lot of cities, as a matter of fact. Uh, L.A. has had it for a long time, and New York loves using the you know the West Coast when it suits them and <laughs> the truth of the matter is nationally letter grades were deemed to be a failed experiment. Interesting. Because it's not that educational. And outside of New York City, most health departments and even the Department of Ag and Markets within the state of New York, they view their mission as educational first. Right. Finding as a last resort. Uh, letter grades are more designed to find you and play gotcha, um, and most health departments around the country, that's not their goal.
0: Yeah, I mean, but that's a challenge for the consumer because the consumer, you know, if you're consumer not, in the, the letter, it's endi- right.
1: Like immediately assumes like, oh, that that must mean right, that must there's mean- animals crawling around the basement. Whereas, like you said, it could be a dented can or a broken sign or a light without a cover on it.
2: It's also a snapshot in time. It happens to just to be relevant. Only yeah. when the inspector was there that moment. And often by the time the inspector is there, the leaves to grade would be different.
0: Right. So when do you recommend people get their consultant to come in and do like the mock inspection?
2: Again, first before you open before because you open. they got to work with you on your kitchen to make right. sure, like you said, the kitchen is compliant. Um, and then uh, shortly after you open when you're, you know, when you're doing a service, uh, better to have your guy there than the health department person there.
0: Yeah, yeah for sure.
1: All right, we could probably bicker about the Department of Health
0: for <laughs> <seven> <laughs> more hours. But it is definitely like the wine. It's, it's definitely something there, to, It's very grown-worthy in the end. I think in the industry. And
1: yeah, it can make or break your business. I think it's very. It's obviously very important to seek out professional guidance yeah. if you're not. If you don't feel like you're super well experienced in it. Or even and if you do, really, like, still talk to somebody.
2: And I encourage people, don't fight with the health department yeah. inspector. It's not going to help uh, the right. inspection. Uh, they've got a tough job to do as well. If they're not treating you with respect and, you know, and courtesy, uh, you you know, you should take down their, their name and deal with it afterwards. But let them do their job and then deal with it afterwards.
0: What do you see typical fines as? You know, like, what do you – from, like, if somebody's, like, an A range, just so people know, like, what they're facing in terms of a budgeting perspective –
2: well, you know, it's hard to get out. You know, you know, less than a thousand dollars. You know, at the end of the day. Left, yeah. And the pro- and you know, they said to me recently that they've seen a slight uptick in, in aggressiveness response to their inspectors, and, and they're concerned about that. Nothing physical,
0: like the restaurant and not cooperating. Are not
2: cooperating. And, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. I said, you know, it's tough times out there. You know. Profit margins are very thin. I'm not saying it's an excuse, but I am saying you need to understand the people that you're regulating. And in the health department inspectors walking in, it's not going to be a happy day no matter what. Even if you get the A, it's going to be stressful. So your people need to understand that. You need to do a better job training those inspectors about that. And we as an industry need to do a better job in letting people know it's not going to help your inspection. Let them do their job.
0: Right. Very, very good advice.
2: But our hospitality alliance, the New York City Hospitality alliance, which is very successful, you know, which is, you know, we started doing nightlife associations for decades, and yeah. ultimately it developed into what I'd always hoped it would be, which is the entire industry, recognizing that they have more in common than they do separate, We're all regulated the same way, and that formed the New York City Hospitality Alliance. It's over 2,000 members now, right. you know, citywide. You know, lots and lots of restaurants, what's left of nightlife, lots of destination hotels, and, um... And you know they do a lot of educational seminars, and they, they really help with a lot of these issues. Um, but it, it's a real good industry advocate, and anybody new in the industry certainly should join that group.
0: Yeah, and I think there's probably similar groups in every city, not just in New York, I'm sure. So definitely look to your local.
2: We're actually um, a national. Oh, uh, you are, a we, national. We are a, No, we are a national. Um, people look to us nationally because right. it is kind of unique. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, we, 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 we speak at national conventions and stuff about how we succeeded in doing New York. Partly, we just have so many places. Right. So it's easier it's than than other areas. Mostly other areas have state restaurant associations which right. are not responsive to the young entrepreneur in, right. you know in cities um, but we we focus on the in, in the trade association our, our message with government is educate first fine second right. and where there can be warnings there should be warnings mm-hmm. and fine should be a last resort
0: yeah wouldn't that be nice? And then just quick one thing about the liquor license: what should people budget for, you know, that expense?
2: So the license itself is cheap in New York right, State compared but- to other states. So a full liquor license, you know, for full alcohol, including spirits, is about forty-five hundred for two years, mm-hmm. which is really not much. Uh, if you want just beer and wine, it's only about eleven hundred dollars for two years. Um, you have about another seven, eight hundred dollars in, you know, in, in in expenses, publication, a bond. You know, when you first um, and then professional fees, you know, which could you know, range from, you know, an expediter who's cheaper to, you know, a good lawyer like me it was a little more expensive. But at the end of the day, it's not expensive compared to what you're paying your architect or right. your, uh, we had several people your transactional
1: attorney. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So several of our last guests, you know, absolutely said 100%. Like it's worth it to have the spend, attorney, spend, spend the money, your money on the now, attorney. good legal advice. Don't just get legal advice. Get good legal advice. <laughs>
2: right. So it's so New York City. Yeah. Yeah. Every third person's hours. a lawyer. We have complicated. <laughs> legal. We have. have we I, purposely I, have complicated legal systems.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I have one more question about the the uh, booze that we didn't talk about. Byob is that legal right. in New York?
2: Not legal in New York. So a restaurant that does not have an alcohol license cannot have alcohol on the premises. Period. Is it policed? Is it punished? It is policed by the police because if the place does not have a liquor license it's a violation of the criminal law to have alcohol on the premises. And I want to reiterate it has, doesn't mean you don't have to be selling it to be in violation. Giving it away is the same thing. Trafficking alcohol does not require a sale. Mm. Uh, someone it, consuming, in someone cons- right. consuming in your place of business. Someone
0: consuming in your place of business when you don't have the, the only license.
2: time and if you do have an alcohol license, the only time Alcohol that you haven't purchased through a licensed wholesale, it could be on your premises. Is that your option if you want to allow a, a, a customer to bring in their own bottle of wine? You are allowed to do that. You're allowed to also charge what they call a corkage fee. Uh, it must be consumed on the premises. Anything left over, the customer needs to take it with them. But uh, that's the only time that a customer could bring alcohol into a licensed place, If it if, into any place, if it has a license and they agree to it. Mm-hmm. BYOB is not legal.
0: And you can jeopardize your potential to get a license at that establishment or any other establishment if you get caught.
2: It's that, but it's more than that. And I tell people, well, so and so is doing that. What about that retail store that's giving me a glass of uh, high end retail store where I get a glass of champagne? And I say, you know, they've been doing it for twenty years. And my answer is, you can get away with everything, something perhaps forever. You know, I always seem to be the one to get caught going through the red light, (laughs) not the other three people that went after me. One hundred percent. The problem is when you do get caught, if you get caught, and and then the issue is a lot more than will you be able to get a liquor license. There are liability issues. Things happen. God forbid you know you're serving alcohol or allowing it to be consumed on your premises and it's a 19 year old girl true stories um you know who got who over and went home with some guy and got date raped right. at home these are real life you know stories that yeah, i've dealt with over the, the years and now that you know the parents appropriately call the police and they're right. doing an investigation and you know and you where did you i got drunk at this place and they don't have a liquor license people are going to get in serious trouble and your insurance company may not cover you even for a slip and fall of somebody who's drinking right. in your place if you don't have a license. So I'm not a liability attorney and I'm not giving liability advice, but there are potential many liability issues for violating the liquor laws. You'll, the liquor law may be the least of your concern. Right, it's just not, no, worth, it. It's not worth, it's it. worth it. not worth
0: it. Let's do super fast, just a couple quick lightning round questions and then uh, we'll wrap up. Um, what's the number one thing to slow people down on permitting?
2: Doing it themselves and not doing it right. Hmm.
0: And what's the biggest misconception about the permitting process?
2: That it's you can't get a liquor license in certain areas. That there's a moratorium. It's not true. That's you not just true. need to know the right people. Know, well, no. You <laughs> need to you need to be strategic, as we discussed right. earlier. You yes. Bring Robert with you. You can't get a four a.m. new bar license <laughs> right. you know, n- necessarily on the L- in the Las anymore. You know, right. there's hardly a shortage of places to get liquor licenses there. But the idea that I, there, you can't get one anywhere, you know, is just not true. Misconception. Favorite place to eat, Robert. Uh, five napkin burger.
0: Yeah.
2: Mm. Uh
1: And then this one usually applies personally, but I think this would apply in, in a client situation, perhaps. Your biggest oh shit moment or like something remarkable that happened, good or bad?
2: Oh, man. I can't tell you those stories. because <laughs> the, the oh shit <laughs> mo- name, names. The oh shit moment is I can't believe liquor already just changed the rule on me and didn't yeah. tell anybody about right. it. And that's when... You, you know, you do a lot of begging. How does yeah. that
1: happen, that, that they would change a rule and I'll not I'll tell you be how that published. happens.
2: Be, and this is a top-level person. The liquor authority said this to me a couple of years ago. About you're dealing with a, an 80-some-odd-year-old law that was not meant for modern times. Right. And the liquor authority does their best to try to modernize what's allowed. There was no internet, you know, when the, when the, liquor, when the liquor law was passed. Right. right. You couldn't
0: Google what's the liquor law, right? Yeah.
2: So. There's a lot of square pegs trying to go in round holes or, or, or the opposite. So what, what they said to me is about 10% of the law is clearly yes. About 10% of the law is clearly no. And that the other 80% is gray area. Yeah. And they recognize that. So a lot of what happens to the liquor authority is not on the website anywhere. It's not in the instruction sheet. It's based on experience about how they deal with stuff. And we've had situations where um, they've re-looked at something and they've changed their mind about how they deal with it. And they now want these documents where before they, you know, they, they wanted those documents, mm-hmm. and um, and that could be a problem. And clearly, you know, when you're you have a timeline, you're expecting to open. So we try to you know work out compromises in those situations. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Cool. Um, no, I think that's that's it. I yeah. think uh, we'll just shout out some friends who have restaurants and bars opening soon. Um, do you know any 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 new licenses you've worked on oh, that should be opening? We
2: got tons, but I just want to say, don't be discouraged. I know it's a it's a tough industry, yeah. but literally, you can make it here. You can make it anywhere. It's a great industry. It is a good
0: industry. And it's a job creating industry, which you pointed um, out, and that's why you work so hard to make everything more
2: business friendly. And, and it is challenging for that, what we call mom and pop, the one restaurant owner, being replaced by a lot of groups and a lot of, you know, a lot of chains. And, you know, we really like, you know, when the mom and pop comes in as well. Uh, It's challenging. I mean, you don't have a back office, you know, uh, to handle all the HR. You don't have an HR department. It's you. Right. Uh, And they keep passing laws to make you have an HR department. (laughs) (laughs) I know.
0: I know about that. I handle HR at at our business. (laughs) But, um, having
2: said that some of the nicest people I dealt with I've dealt with of, of, of clients are well respected in the industry yeah. uh, you know just did the Cidarella at Hudson Yards so the owner of Cidarella is the nicest person you know Joe is the nicest person in the world. Some famous people that we've dealt with you'd be surprised at how, you know how, yeah. how nice they are you, you, you never know you never yeah. know.
0: Cool. Um, all right, well, we'll take a second to shout out some upcoming opening soon. Um, our friend Billy Durney of Red Hook Tavern is getting opened this weekend. So he um, also is his hometown barbecue. So if you're in Red Hook, Brooklyn, go check out Red Hook Tavern. I hear their burger is killer.
2: Great barbecue, too.
0: Yeah, best barbecue. I love it there.
1: Cool. Yeah, we are super stoked for that one. Um, Next week, join us as we chat ingredients and menu planning. We'll have uh, James Kent and Jeff Katz of Crown Shy. Uh, That's a restaurant in New York's financial district. James was the chef at EMP. And Jeff was uh, at uh, Del Posto before opening Crown Shy as well. Uh, Special thanks again to Robert Bookman for being here. If your grill guy torched your notebook and we've got your back, you can check our blog until at nyc.com to catch our wrap up of key points from today. Uh, It'll be a long wrap up because there's a lot of great things that we (laughs) talked about today. Robert, how, how do people find you? Is there a website? A-
2: there is a website, uh, www.pb.law.
1: Easy enough. Find them. Find them early. Find them now. If and you're if not you, in
2: New York, find somebody. Yeah, if you comparable. Google my name, you'll get a lot of old pictures of me on Geraldo <laughs> and other, t- other TV stations. Look for the beautiful man. Ooh.
1: Follow the journey on Heritage Radio. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcast. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at We Are Opening Soon and at Till at NYC. And we'll catch you next week.
0: Thank you so much for Thanks, joining Robert. us. It's yeah, my,
2: really, my pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this.